Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio. A fine Thursday morning, which is what we're recording on, but you're going to be listening to this on a fine Friday morning on the 5th of um, February. Now, um, before I guess we have a pretty um, packed program today, we're going to be, um, as that was, as it was announced on Facebook, um, our Facebook page, um, we're going to be playing a recording of, actually maybe Zane can kind of explain it before, but maybe just before I get into, into it, um, just like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present and acknowledge that this um, land was stolen and that it always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Mm-hmm. Now, for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob, and then we have Zane. Hello. Now, as I was sort of saying before, we're going to be playing... Um, this Zoom play that was actually something that we did um, as the Green Left kind of radio team um, worked on. You want to sort of explain a bit more about it, Zane? Yes. So there is a uh, author slash activist uh, lawyer from Newcastle who goes by the pen name JD Svensson, and her full name is actually Jackie Svensson, and. Jackie's just spent uh, several years putting together this book called Direct Action, which was released, I think, uh, last year. And it's about some environmentalists slash terrorists, that question is explored in the book, who decide to blow up uh, two coal-fired power stations in New South Wales, which causes blackouts and a massive political crisis. And uh, there's uh, legal... Someone is sort of seconded from her corporate law job to provide legal representation to one of the accused in this uh, in this case. So it's a very interesting book in what it explores. It gives a really interesting insight into this nexus between political activism and law and the state 
uh, and the, the judicial sort of system, which if anyone's been to an arrestable action, you would be familiar with that nexus and how very handy it is <laughs> to have pro bono legal representation <laughs> from lawyers who know what they're talking about. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very riveting book. And the Green Left Radio team spanning um, Melbourne, Sydney, Newcastle and Brisbane uh, offices of Green Left have collaborated to bring to life a dramatisation of Chapter 13 of this book. So we're very excited about playing that for you later on. And uh, after that recording has played, we'll also give you the details if you want to, if it piques your interest and you want to purchase this book. You can get that from Lacuna Publishing and we'll give you the details of the website. So, yes, very excited about playing that. All right. Um, Now, I guess I want to go into a bit, um, maybe just to start off the program, I wanted to sort of just give a bit of um, news updates taken from the pages of Green Left or maybe sometimes the mainstream press if if Green Left hasn't necessarily got it in print yet. And first kind of story I wanted to report on, and this is something I think we might have, spoken about a few times um, or made mention, um, but there has been this sort of ongoing, um, this ongoing industrial struggle uh, at the Smarten Grange warehouse in Western Sydney, um, which is owned by Coles. Basically, um, free, um, 350 workers had been locked out of this um, warehouse in Western Sydney. And basically, um, the dispute has been around um, kind of a number of kind of conditions and under kind of a met, um, pressure, um, the um, the workers have reluctantly kind of accepted a, an agreement. Now, the um, on January 22nd, basically the members have of UWU of these workers have basically accepted an offer by Coles and will be going back to work. Now, Details about this new offer include improvements gained from taking industrial action, including a payout of accrued um, personal leave and other time entitlements, uh, a minimum of 50 voluntary redundancies, um, a greater permanent to casual ratio, ensuring um, Coles employees um, permanent workers before using labour hire agencies workers, and ensuring no disciplinary action is taken against members who took strike action. So, all that I think sounds quite kind of positive. Um, on the other hand, there are a number of sort of negatives. Um, the UWU has report, reported that it had been unsuccessful in managing to force to, um, Coles to provide workers with a just transition when they clearly could, uh, could afford to do so. Coles had not budged from its kind of position on redundancy. So basically early on to sort of explain a bit of context, um, Coles has basically threatened that they will be making workers at this warehouse redundant due to sort of development of sort of automation kind of technologies. In fact, Coles is sort of, and Woolworths are sort of known uh, for for their automatic kind of technology, including like, you know, it goes as far in the retail sphere with um, the uh, the invention of self-checkout machines, which are really like uh, designed to really cut costs and cut labour. Um and um, for four weeks, um, so basically that's sort of one um, kind 
And of course, a fair redundancy was a key issue motivating union members to take strike action. And it's reported by UWU, if this country wants to be serious about creating just transitions for workers who face losing their jobs as a result of automation or shift away from fossil fuel industries, we need to finally we need to find a better way to properly hear and respond to um, workers' voices, UWs. And, of course, there has been some mixed reaction from the Smelton Grange workers to this proposed settlement, which is still to be formalised in all staff wrote. Uh, according to comments posted on the UWU Facebook page, not everyone is happy with the agreement. And, of course, there's a debate sort of going on where a comment was said, so what is, was the difference um, between the first officer that was directed by the members to the one that was voted up today? Was there anything gained from the time on the grass? And, of course... Um, Others said, let's get one thing here. This was a vote under duress. Every vote the members at Smeaton Garage have, have had to ensure, endure since the lockdown out began has been under duress. They haven't agreed to this because they're happy with it. They agree because they have gone 10 weeks with very little to no financial support. Um, this is why a fighting fund needs to be created so no uh, company ever gets away with financially starving people to accept their conditions ever again. So in some sense, the summary is this is only a partial victory. In fact, in some ways, it's probably a bit of a loss as well because um, then the workers didn't necessarily win every single one of their sort of demands. Yes, uh, by all accounts, they were sort of starved back to work. And I think that final comment that's being quoted there, this is why a fighting fund needs to be created so no company gets away with financially starving people to accept their conditions again is spot on, particularly in the context of unions giving massive donations to the Labor Party uh, every year and, and at election time. We're talking about millions of dollars here. Uh, Australia does not have a very high rate of industrial action. Um, strikes such as what the Smeaton Grange workers have just taken are the exception, not the norm at the moment. Strikes are pretty rare, which means that the union movement would not be stumping up massive amounts of money if it was to pay um, the wages or a decent chunk of the wages of those workers while they're on strike so that they can stay out longer and so that they're not starved back to work. So I think this is a really spot-on comment there, and it's something that the entire union movement, I think all, all workers or union members, really need to be pushing for their unions to have a fighting fund, stop just handing over giant wads of cash to the Labor Party, put that money in a fighting fund, and when workers go on strike, support them, give them support payments every week so that they can stay out until they win their demands. Definitely. Anyway, we might, um, if there's any kind of more kind of updates on this, um, because I think there still needs to be some things formalised with um, the agreement, we might um, potentially might give a bit of an update next week. But um, anyway, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR at 8.55am, and I think we'll just play a bit of an announcement um, and then move on to the next part of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues, 
So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAP. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Okay, you are listening to Green Left um, Radio. Now, now just something I, I sort of wrote, uh, I wrote a bit of a talk on this actually recently, um, but many of our listeners have probably been following some of the recent kind of developments um, around Facebook and Twitter. And in fact, to really kickstart this kind of discussion that me and Zhang would like to kind of have Facebook has made sort of a bit of an interesting kind of announcement as of last Wednesday. But basically, the announcement is Mark Zuckerberg has basically stated that Facebook will no longer recommend um, political um, in people's kind of news feeds. Um, basically, if you use Facebook, there's sometimes there is this sort of suggested sort of groups sort of tab. And essentially what... What that kind of means is Facebook is kind of going to make a sort of deliberate decision while they're not going to remove the listings of kind of political groups, um, et cetera. They have essentially going to make it harder to, for political groups to sit in, uh, appear in kind of people's news feeds. Now, this comes into a particular political context, um, because just recently in last month, uh, Facebook well, Twitter had banned Donald Trump um, from its social media platform, and Facebook has also taken action by deleting a kind of number of sort of far-right sort of pages. And at the same time, I've also just made one other sort of observation. i um, just been involved in an election campaign recently, I and when it came to sort of sort of I'm um, doing some paid advertising. For, um, for this political campaign, I noticed that you kind of had to create a sort of, um, you have to go for a sort of process of setting up a kind of disclaimer so that people know that it's political kind of material. Like basically if you produce an ad, it will say that it's, this is being published by X and Y or the Labor Party, et cetera, kind of thing. And basically that disclaimer is kind of sort of needed um, um, to give people their own. So there, it does seem to be this sort of interesting sort of trend. Now, I guess a few comments I sort of want to make, I guess, on all this is um, there's, there's a whole host of kind of issues that I guess this creates. But I guess there has been this kind of frequent kind of argument um, by the right um, that Trump being banned from Twitter sort of in some sense represents a sort of violation, I guess, of his freedom of speech. And I guess there's a few kind of issues, I think, with with that. And in fact, even some, there's been some sections of, I think the left have 
sort of been making these sort of arguments um, that, you know, the Trump ban has sort of set a worrying kind of precedent. And in some ways, potentially, that is that is actually true in some sense, because, as I said, Facebook is um, basically making it harder for political groups to sort of, in sense, have a bit of a platform on Facebook by basically limiting um, how it appears in the news feeds, etc. Um, at the same time that this is happening, um, the Socialist Workers Party in the UK has had its Facebook page repeatedly kind of deleted. And then, of course, it gets relisted and delisted. Uh, I don't know what the current situation is that, but it seems to be going through this cycle of being delisted and then reactivated, etc. And then the Extinction kind of rebellion kind of page um, got um, listed, um, was basically... Um, deleted in Australia as well, and I think it had to be recreated. But so, but I don't know what what the kind of deal with that is. Anyway, I think a few things. Um, I guess the comment I sort of want to make is I don't necessarily think Trump being banned on Twitter is necessarily a violation of his freedom of speech per se, because really the actual reality is I think it really has to do with this question of who has a right to a platform under capitalism. And, of course, that is something that is always going to be contested. And, in fact, there's all sorts of political forces that will influence who has a platform and who doesn't. And in fact, really, compared to the far left, Trump being banned on Twitter isn't really taken away from the fact that he already has a large platform to gain. He's still been interviewed on major news stations, although some news stations have actually pulled away from giving a platform. But, of course, as, um, you know, given that we are doing... Uh, on our free CR program, we are always sort of making uh, a deliberate choice on who we platform and who we we always sort of prioritise platforming sort of left-wing forces. And then um, that's um, that's sort of a kind of deliberate choice. So I think my sort of argument is sort of, I think it's important to probably not look at this as sort of an issue of freedom of speech because freedom of speech, I think, is really, it's about a principle of we have a right to say what we want without fear of state repression. It doesn't necessarily free you from the consequences of said speech. Now, there's not doesn't mean it's justified that Facebook and Google are attempting to kind of repress left-wing voices, and I think that is actually a worrying precedent. But I think in the case of the far right, it's not necessarily um, their freedom. I don't think we should line up with the right by saying that their freedom of speech is necessarily right. In fact, it's their platform being threatened by particular forces who don't necessarily want them to have a platform. And it's a combination of the fact that there are certain capitalist interests that are opposed to Trump. But there's also the fact that there is obviously there is an overwhelming, there's a, there's not a great deal of mass support uh, for the ideas, I guess, of Donald Trump. Um, or the far right. Anyway, I might just pass on to Zane if you want to have a, a few comments. Yeah, well, I think um, the elephant in the room in this whole discussion is the coup attempt of January 6th, and that is not speech. Invading the Capitol building, uh, attacking people, trying to hunt down and murder politicians, which there is numerous reports that that's what people intended to do, that is not speech. That is action is profoundly anti-democratic and that is really the difference and I think most people would look at um, the fascists in World War II or in the lead up to World War II who started um, invading neighbouring countries and so on 
I think most people would agree that some level of military response um, to the to rising threat of fascism was needed. Uh, so the question then becomes, if a military response to fascism is warranted once fascism has taken hold, where do you where do you start drawing the line? Where do you start escalating things? And where do you go from, oh, these fascists have a right to, you know, talk about and advocate genocide and racism, which I think is, is problematic. I don't really support hate speech. I don't think that people should have a right to go around saying, let's kill all Muslims. That's not, that's not freedom of speech. You're actually advocating mass murder. Uh, I can't, I can't walk out and go, I think we should kill Dan Andrews because I'm advocating murder. And that's a, that's, that's a serious issue. And you can get in trouble with the law for that. You can't just walk around trying to get people to murder someone else and trying to, to whip up a, a murderous gang. So I think there's, there's a difference between freedom of speech and hate speech where you're going around actively trying to incite genocide. And then in the case of the events of January 6th, there's people who've been going around actively trying to incite a coup to overturn the results of a democratic election. That's not, that's, that's moved beyond freedom of speech and having an opinion about a particular political issue to advocating for a type of, um, militia action to overturn a democratic election. So in my opinion, yeah, freedom of speech is not freedom from consequence and attempting to uh, stage a coup should not be free from consequence either. And to me, that's a big difference. And I think it's quite proportional and warranted to start to limit the uh, platform of people who have not just advocated for uh, a violent overthrow of democracy, but who've actually started taking physical steps in that direction. And, uh, yeah, as um, we were discussing earlier, there's a, there's a balance of class forces or a, a balance of popular opinion at play as well. So if um, Twitter or Facebook bans progressive or left-wing groups, we know that there is capacity for the left to organise and for mass uh, outrage and pressure to be put on Facebook and Twitter to reinstate those accounts. And this is another dynamic and another area where the progressives and the left and environmentalists need to be confident and need to get organised in our ability to have... um, legitimate um, groups and outlets on these social media platforms reinstated if they get cut because wanting to organise climate protests or wanting to talk about how capitalism is an inherently oppressive and unequal system, that's not hate speech. We're not talking about uh, overthrowing democratic elections. We're not talking about trying to have one particular uh, ethnic group all ethnically cleansed and murdered. It's not hate speech. We shouldn't be banned for having those opinions. We need to be confident in the fact that 
being a socialist or being a climate activist is not the same thing as being a fascist and advocating genocide and trying to invade parliaments. Yeah, I think that's kind of well, um, Zane, because I think, I think that distinction is kind of important because I really think like when the right is sort of complaining about how our free, um, the free, their free, um, freedom of speech has been curtailed because Twitter or Facebook is deleting their pages. I don't think the left should necessarily be lining up with that because even though, yes, there is a fact that the left will be repressed, probably by these big tech companies, because by all intents and purposes, these big tech companies exist in the context of capitalism. Their, their only real interest is basically making as much profit as possible. And of course, when there is a threat to their profit making, then they will take sort of repressive action. But of course, there's all sorts of contradictions that I guess arise of this because really, Facebook wants to kind of see itself um, and most big tech companies as like a free market kind of ideas um, where, you know, any sort of thing can flourish. In fact, that's really, that has to do with how Google's um, rise because really Google's rise actually can be attributed to the fact that it was relating to this whole idea of freedom of information and basically spreading it around. Of course, the irony is as soon as they got started getting monopoly, they started realizing they can actually start controlling the flow of information. So that's, I think, where the sort of allu- where we shouldn't sort of have any illusions in these big tech companies. They're not, they're not necessarily on our side, but I don't think necessarily arguing that, you know, Trump being banned on Twitter, um, is like a bad precedent is not necessarily, I don't think that's inconsistent because basically our, for the left, our right to have a, our, our right to have a platform on the, sort of these bourgeois platforms like big tech um, and um, and bourgeois press like the Murdoch press, that is dependent on the balance of our class forces and the power of kind of mass movements to be able to, um, to put that kind of forward. And I think that's really what we should be focusing on, not sort of appealing notion that, everyone has a right to a platform because if we focus on this sort of notion of everyone has a right to a platform, we're not necessarily building our sort of independent sort of power. And of course we, we might potentially be at risk of lining up with the right on this sort of issue of freedom of speech because the actual reality is the right who goes on about freedom of speech in this context, they don't actually care about freedom of speech because the same Republicans who are arguing that we should be, um, that we, should implement legislation that prevents Twitter from banning far-right or right-wing content are the same people that are also happily sheer on the police repressing um, Black Lives Matter protests. Like, I think that's just an important sort of distinction to kind of make. And I think, yeah, you're completely right that our right our right to a platform, et cetera, is really dependent on the balance of class forces. And, of course, we know that Facebook and Google and big tech can will try and actively repress us um, if it's in their interests, but we have to be confident in the power of the mass movements um, because, yeah, as a, another kind of precedent that sort of happened is um, Facebook did try to delete some of the pages of uh, the Indian sort of farmers um, solidarity kind of movement um, in India, and this was from pressure from the Modi government, but it was quickly in response to sort of mass pressure, they did quickly kind of reinstate those pages. Um, whereas interesting enough, it seems to be that the far right has so little mass support that they're struggling to even set up their own alternative um, platforms 
uh, because no um, hosting service is willing to host them. And I thought it was quite funny. Um, there's this really good, in- if you search in Google uh, interview with um, the Pirate Bay founder, um, there's quite a good sort of interview um, with him. Um, where, he sort of goes, um, where he sort of makes he makes a bit, um, fun of how out of um, of how the fact that the far right to get its uh, servers up when the Pirate Bay was has been managed to stay up so long that it's um, basically even despite the fact that it was hated by most governments in the world and most corporations, so that sort mm. of says something. <laughs> yeah, on a related topic, what do you think of? Sort of on a tangentially related issue, there's this uh, proposed new media bargaining code and Google is threatening to pull out of Australia uh, if they need to pay some sort of uh, royalty for uh, platforming news content from different uh, news websites. Uh, There's been some calls, I think it was the Greens in Parliament yesterday, have called for... Uh, the Australian government to set up a publicly owned kind of alternative to Google. And there's been calls from the Australia Institute last year to set up a publicly owned, for the ABC to set up a publicly owned social media channel. What do you think of uh, those ideas? Because there's, there's this other idea that, okay, if we have a massive uh, working class uprising around the world, maybe we can kind of nationalise um, Facebook and Twitter and uh, democratise those things and put them into public ownership. Um, what, what do you think of the pros and cons of democratising existing mass platforms versus setting up some sort of publicly owned alternative? Well, I guess... My sort of opinion is I would lean towards supporting more the former of actually democratising the existing mass platforms because basically I think a public broadcaster is a lot different from a public search engine. Google thrives over on the fact, and the reason why we all use it actually is because it has such global reach. Like it reaches into every sort of FS into sort of the world, Um and it's connected to everything. Like we want to, um, one, some of the reasons we like to use Facebook and Google is that it brings us in contact with other countries, other cultures, etc. Like that's sort of the benefits of the internet, um, that are not necessarily, ref- that ne- might not necessarily be captured with a public search engine. But what if there was uh, a level of internationalism and a, a sort of some sort of network of public broadcasters or similar from potentially not every country around the world, but from a few different countries linked up to make this kind of alternative. Well, that, I, I agree with the point you make there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that could that actually in some sense could be a better alternative than Google and Facebook. Like, for example, I mean, the thing about Google and Facebook and Twitter is these platforms. They can't. They won't necessarily last forever. In fact, there could always be a crisis or a contradiction that actually makes these services completely fall apart. Because I know Google and um, Facebook are bluffing. I, or I think Google's made the threat. Google has threatened to withdraw its search engine from Australia. I'm pretty convinced that that it's a bluff because Google benefits from the fact that it has a global market everywhere. They're not going to take out 
a market. This is just really a bluff to weaken the legislation as much as they possibly can, um, which I think is a very worrying precedent, um, even though I don't necessarily think that the government is motivated by any real good intentions. In fact, they're really just catering to the Murdoch press. Um, um, and I think this conflict is really just a conflict between capitalists wanting to have a bigger share of the pie, so to speak, and it's not really, it's not motivated, but I think it is a worrying precedent that Facebook um, is, um, or Google, really, is basically threatening um, to withdraw its services to basically veto government legislation. Because, you know, imagine if a progressive government um, wanted to actually get Google and Facebook to actually pay its fair share of tax, because Google and face the likes of Facebook, they tried to actually intentionally in some ways the tax they should be paying, and this is all perfectly legal through the fact that they operate within a global market. Mm. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's basically, yeah, I think all these, um, I think it's definitely worth sort of debating and discussing these sort of ideas because I think, yeah, there's clearly a limitation with a public broadcast, um, public search engine. Um, and I think it's, it's also, you know, you know, sometimes there's also examples as well, like, um, Countries like, for example, like China have in some sense essentially set up similar structures to that. But the problem is they do it through the, through the gulfs of really authoritarianism and repressiveness. So basically controlling what people kind of see. Um, and of course, that's interesting enough where, where people sort of want, relate to sort of Facebook and Google because they see it as like, oh, freedom of information. You have freedom to kind of say what you say, but then that it's, contradicts. It's controlled by noble corporations. Yeah, but it's controlled by noble. But it's controlled by noble corporations who actually benefit from who want your consumer data, who want to collect your marketing information, and they also want to control what you see. And it sort of relates actually almost to. Um, I'm sort of paraphrasing. It sort of relates almost to the ideas of um, of the philosopher Foucault, who basically tried to make an argument that. Um, Governments and states will control you through basically making you think you are an individual with choice. And in fact, Google and Facebook is actually the best example of that. Yeah, you may think you have choice, um, because you're an individual. In fact, Google has given you all these individual things, your own Gmail accounts, your own Google documents to do what you want. But of course, they're actually controlling what you actually see on the search engine and what you see on the search engine is actually mediated by all these algorithms that are all designed to maximize their, their profit. And it's not, and not in the interests of um, free expression and democracy. Mm. All right. Well, we've sort of had a bit of a, just a bit of a sort of random sort of discussion going through all sorts of different topics, but this is something I think we will definitely like to explore in greater depth in our future sort of green left kind of radio kind of programs. Um, but a bit of a plug, we, um, the next Green Left show, um, that is being recorded in, um, nationally is going to actually be focusing on kind of a panel on big tech and democracy. So that will be a sort of interesting kind of discussion and we will potentially be playing it next week for our program. Anyway, you are listening to Green Left Radio and, um, we might just move on to the next part of the program. Let's maintain the rage. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join our first meeting of 2021 online on Thursday the 14th of January at 6.30pm. Become actively involved in ongoing campaigns to prevent more Aboriginal deaths in custody. 
It's an opportunity to learn, ask questions, offer skills and have a discussion. Join our team in working with families of Aboriginal people who have died in custody in their fight for justice. Message Ishta Melbourne Facebook with your email and we'll send through an invitation to join the online discussion. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio. It's Friday breakfast and you are on 3CR 8.55 a.m. Now, we've got a special presentation for you this week, and that is uh, the dramatisation for radio of Chapter 13 of the book Direct Action by J.D. Svensson. And as I mentioned at the start of this week's show, this has been put together by a bunch of the Green Left team uh, in collaboration with the author, J.D. Svensson, Jackie Svensson, who helped us uh, kind of edit down a, uh, a radio script adapted from the book. And, yeah, this, this book is uh, it's about some environmentalists slash terrorists. That question is explored as part of the book who blow up two coal-fired power stations as a sort of desperate action to try and halt um, runaway warming. And yeah, it's, it's a fantastic book and I can't recommend it highly enough. You can get it from lacunapublishing.com, L-A-C-U-N-A. Just look for direct action. But yeah, uh, I'll give you those details again at the end of this, but here it is. Chapter 13 of direct action as dramatized by the Green Left team. is a successful corporate lawyer on the cusp of partnership at one of Sydney's most prestigious firms. But just as the partners raise their schnapps to vote in favour of her elevation to partnership, the lights go out. Five environmental activists, Andromeda, Skydark, Flame, Ariel and Bearheart, have blown up two of the state's biggest power stations, plunging the metropolis into darkness. Andromeda is her boss at the law firm's daughter, and Cressida must act as her lawyer or shelve her partnership aspirations. Andy's father doesn't much care whether his daughter gets acquitted or not. Above all, Cressida is directed to keep the case quiet and make sure none of it makes the headlines or damages the firm's reputation. Our reading opens on Cressida's first meeting with Andromeda, or Andromeda number Proximus Rigel Fairbank, as she is known, in the maximum security section of the Metropolitan Remand and Reception Centre at Silverwater, Malawa, in solitary, to take first instructions from her client. The entrance to Silverwater Women's Correctional Centre was marked by a high white sign with large efficient letters and a row of palm trees that tossed in the wind. At the end of the driveway, the prison's high brick walls sat, silent, breached by roller doors several stories high and circled by a cyclone fence. Cressida swung the Fiat into a marked bay near the guard station and killed the engine. The white file on the seat next to her was thin, containing only the blank Hannah Swartling intake form and the email from the prison yesterday. 
the copy of the court attendance notice had arrived from the police that morning. Oddly, only one charge was listed. Crimes Act 1900, New South Wales, Section 93 FA. Possession of explosives. A person who possesses an explosive in a public place is guilty of an offence. But then again, it was usual to start soft to secure a defendant while the police got the evidence they needed for the real case. Come on, how hard could it be, she asked herself. Regardless of the specifics, her job as Joanne's lawyer was the same in principle as acting for corporates, right? Get instructions, make the prosecution prove everything, and hope for a vaguely humane sentence. That was all anyone could ask of her, wasn't it? She jammed on a wide-brimmed hat and fell in behind the crowd converging on a footpath. Past the security office and up a slight rise, the large concrete building sat. Silverwater Women's Correctional Centre. Oversized silver letters on the front wall declared. Correction, Cressida thought as she climbed the hill. Good luck with that. Maybe it was different in a women's prison, she decided, looking at the enormous wall. Weren't women likely to be kinder to each other? But then again, she wouldn't know. All her criminal clients so far had been male and minimum security. At the foot of the building, people were already waiting, sprawled on the long benches or leaning against the wall smoking. The men stared at her as she clicked up the footpath. The women gave one glance, sniffed and looked away. She perched on one end of the bench as a rivulet of sweat broke loose from her armpit and ran down her ribs. Dispensing with the jacket wasn't an option, with so many pairs of mirrored sunglasses looking on. Discreetly, she found a tissue in her bag and wiped perspiration from under her eyelids, declaring inwardly to the sunglasses, It's hot all right. It's not because I'm nervous. Even though you are, she counted. So? There was plenty to be nervous about, wasn't there? What if the client was, well, violent or something? She'd carried 45 kilos of explosives two kilometres, for God's sake. You had to be pretty intense to go blowing things up. Time check. 12.31. How typical of a government institution to be late. Asham School, she thought. She still couldn't believe Joanne Fairbank was an Asham girl. The romance centre at Silverwater would be a long way from the pearls and princess curls life her client had probably had. What a fall from grace. She'd known a couple of Asham girls who'd gone the radical route in their 20s, horizontally recruited to the Socialist Alliance at uni or run off with the ferals like her brother and Sea Shepherd, and they all still end up living on the North Shore and married to some titan of grass seed or the manufacturer of pen lids. Joanne was probably feeling that she'd bitten off way more than she could chew right now, Cressida reflected. But then, she thought, looking at the hard faces of the women waiting, maybe a private girls' school was just the thing to sort you out for women's maximum security. The glass doors opened, and with careful nonchalance, cigarettes were stubbed out, mobile phones pocketed, and bodies pushed away from walls. Cressida shoved the hat in her bag and dispensed with any pretense of sang Freud. Once inside the glacial foyer, she weaved to the front of the queue. At last she was processed and sat down on one of the long red foam couches to wait while across from her, a man in his twenties took up the staring. To distract herself, she focused on a sign taped below the window on the guard's office. Pajamas must be patterned. No lace or plain colours, next to a picture of short flannelette pajamas, black covered with white stars. Buttons must be as shown on this picture. Full-length microfiber dressing gowns only. A fluffy pink garment was demonstrated. Slippers must have no back or lining. To be provided on receipt of valid prisoner request form only. Cressida looked around discreetly at what people were carrying. Were there any pyjamas in those bags? 
what would happen if their characteristics were in breach of protocol? Would the inmate be required to parade their lacy, plain-coloured nightwear with its inappropriate buttons and account for herself? What would the punishment be? Pajama confiscation? But then what would the inmate wear? It was all too complicated to contemplate. Fortunately, at that point, the guard came out of her cubicle and stood in front of the entrance to security, a small anteroom one side of the foyer that looked like a clear glass double-doored lift. In a rattle of plastic and keys, she held a card on an elastic band to a sensor and it glowed green. Legal first. You're the one here to see Fairbank. Cressida nodded. The guard took a lanyard from around her own neck and gave it to her. There was a large plastic circle hanging off it. Put this on. She picked up a walkie-talkie and murmured into it. One for Special K. Special K? What was that? On the other side of the glass box, another guard in pale green descended the stairs, and the first guard nodded towards her. She'll take you. Press the button. Inside, people in white jumpsuits sat at tables, looking most of all to Cressida like a company of astronauts waiting for liftoff. Except for their faces, she thought all of which were watching the door with a naked loin they were trying desperately to conceal. Then they were out on an asphalt open area where groups of women in bottle green tracksuits sat smoking. Her heels crunching on the stones was way too loud. Feeling their eyes on her, she focused on the torch swinging from the guard's belt in front of her. A couple of the women called out. Hey, honey, give him my love. Nice suit, nice swap, yeah? Cressida nailed a half-smile to her face. Torn between wanting to ignore them, but afraid it would incite aggression and smiling at the risk of generating ridicule. By the time she decided which approach to take, she'd reached the other side of the asphalt and stood, sweat prickling her armpits as the guard opened another glass door and stood aside to let her through. They entered a bleak corridor. Silent as they walked, except for the clip of Cressida's heels and the squeak of the guard's shoes on the linoleum. It was lined with doors with small windows in them, through which Cressida glimpsed the metal frames of hospital beds and, in one, alarmingly, a leather strap on a chain hanging off one side of it. The whole place spelt of bleach and mildew. What's this? Infirmary. What? Is she sick? The guard only glanced back at her, impassive. They emerged into the sunlight again, onto a grassy area that was empty except for a small building on the other side. It was featureless weatherboard except for a letter K on the wall. The guard turned to her. You ever visited Category 5 before? No, but I know the rules. Do not touch her. Do not give her anything. Do not accept anything from her. Do not discuss anything other than issues pertaining to your legal representation of her. (laughs) What, not even the weather? Your visit is limited to 15 minutes. If you feel in danger at any time, press that button. The guard indicated the item on the lanyard around Cressida's neck. Oh, for God's sake. It's a panic button? I will be within arm's reach outside the door. We don't want your family suing us in the event of your death. Cressida stood for a moment, watching after her. How was she supposed to get proper instructions in 15 minutes? Screw that. She'd talk as long as she needed to. They could drag her out. She squared her shoulders and followed. The corridor was short, with a closed metal door on the left, and then, a short distance away, another. As Cressida followed, her heart was racing again. Ah, oh, for God's sake, she thought. This is all hype. There's nothing to be afraid of. 
The guard stopped outside the second door. With a thud of D-bolts, she unlocked it and pulled it ajar, nodded at Cressida, and stood back on the other side of the passage. Cressida looked at her, waiting for her to leave. If I've only got 15 minutes, at least give us some privacy. As the guard stayed put, Cressida sighed and turned back to the door. She put her hand on the outer casing. The door itself was five inches thick. Come on, she told herself. You know how to do this. She took a deep breath and knocked with conscious firmness. The sound it made was barely audible. She tried again and hurt her knuckles. She gave up and spoke through the gap. Hello, Miss Fairbank? It's Cressida Mitzok from Hannah Swartling. We have an appointment? The law firm? On the table, an arm was visible. It wore a thin string bracelet and there was a spiral tattoo on the wrist. She slapped on the door, feeling ridiculous, but it still made only a muted clap. She opened it enough to enter and looked in. The occupant had her head on one forearm, asleep on the desk. She wore an orange jumpsuit, still had the box creases on it, and dangling from the back of the collar was a tiny silver set of keys. The other arm was in a heavy cast, supported by a sling. Cressida's gaze strayed to her ankles. Around them were inch-thick chains, the links of another snaking to her wrists on the table, one running up to the white of the cast. Cressida paused, a sluice of fear hitting the back of her throat. Why would they put those on her if she wasn't dangerous? The first noticeable thing was that she looked like Brian. It was that same delicate aristocratic nose, the fine bow-shaped mouth, cheekbones that looked a little bit Native American. Her face was even more childlike than in the photo on the paper. But as well as the pink, there were dark lines angling down from the inner corners of her eyes and a dressing plastered to the side of her sweat-damp forehead. Under the short, messy dreadlocks, her blonde hair was dyed pink in some places and hacked close to her scalp in others. Round her neck, under the jumpsuit, were several woven necklaces. Against the white walls, the hard laminex of the desk and the medieval whiff of the chains, the whole effect was of some sort of soft wild creature chastened by captivity, a piece of mangy almost roadkill brought into hospital for rehab but tranquilised to stop her biting someone. Cressida stood wondering what to do. She'd never had a sleeping client before. Eventually she sat down in the chair on the opposite side of the desk. The room was stuffy and so small their knees were nearly touching. She swallowed, concerned that even that small noise would be enough to wake the occupant up. There wasn't much point spending 15 minutes with her asleep, though, was there? Come on, get a grip of yourself. Shackles, panic button, guard outside. What more do you want? She cleared her throat. Nothing happened. And in the silence, she listened to Joanne's breathing. The longer she sat there, the more awkward it felt. In. Out. In. Out. Then a door slammed outside, and the inmate sat up with a jerk, saw Cressida, and yelled, knocking the chair over. The guard burst in just as Joanne threw herself back from the desk in a crash of the chain on Laminex, hands raised. It's fine. It's fine. Joanne, take it easy. Cressida Mitzok from Hans Swartland. Christ, give me a heart attack. I must have fell asleep. They were full-on grilling me till four this morning. Oh, my God. It is so hot in here. Sorry. Who are you again? I've been talking to so many people. Cressida Mitzok. She slipped an embossed business card from its case and held it out to her. 
She was annoyed to notice her hand was shaking. Your dad sent me. Right. My dad sent you? Oh, wow. How did that asshole know I was here? You're kidding me. Well, you're all over the papers, for starters. You'd have to be on Planet Zorg not to hear about it. What happened to your arm? Oh, I slipped on the way out the cooling pipe. I bashed it on the side and in the force of the water. Did they set it properly and things? Oh, I had that done before I turned myself in. A maid of mine. Ah, oh, okay. Some accessory after the fact. Let's not even go there, thought Cressida. Not yet. So when do I get to get out of this dog box anyway? She looked at Cressida, head cocked, and made a sort of musical noise, then shook her head like a dog shaking off water. Her dreadlocks danced. If I'm going to be in here for a while, I want to make some friends. The walls in my cell have padding. <laughs> it's like they think I'm nuts or something. I think I annoyed them, though. I kept saying the same thing. Admitting to everything, basically. I think they expected more of a fight. You told them everything? <laughs> yeah. Why wouldn't I? I had nothing to hide. I meant to do it, remember? Oh, well, anyway, once we get the brief of evidence, though, we can start tearing it to shreds. Oh, that won't be necessary. Oh, I'm pleading guilty. Guilty? Yeah, of course. Why bother making the police prove it? I did it on purpose. I wanted to do it. Sorry, I thought Dad would have told you that. He doesn't know very much about me, but I would have thought he'd work that out. But don't you want to wait and see what all the charges are before you decide? Not really. I already know what they'll be. The gist of them, anyway. Blowing shit up. I didn't kill anyone at the plant, though. They do know that, didn't, don't they? I, I don't know. Although, I do remember reading that there had been no deaths at Liddell. Right. Good. Cressida lay the newspaper article on the table. Her client saw it and grabbed it. What the fuck? Terrorism? That's fucking absurd. Oh, my God. Now I've seen everything. Don't let a good story get in the way of truth, right? Bloody hell. You know, it's this type of reporting that's got us in this fucking shitstorm. If newspapers had bothered to tell the truth about climate change, instead of being bought off by every stinking coal corporate in the country, the world would have taken action long ago. God, that's pathetic. Jesus. God, it's so hot. Can you ask them to get some fucking air conditioning on in here? But Joanne, like it says, it's very likely they will charge you with terrorism if they haven't already. Surely you knew that. <laughs> no, that's ridiculous. I blew shit up. How is that terrorism? Joanne, when they were interviewing you, did they go on about intention at all, the police? What, you mean about why I did it? Yes. So I and I I told them to stop climate change of course contribute to stopping it anyway I imagine there'll be copycats around the world if there haven't been already have there I I don't mean that look I think we can all accept that you did it to advance a political or ideological cause right but what what no that's not true at all I did it to advance what was right 
to call it political, that makes it sound like it was a, a choice. No, it doesn't. Anyway, even if it wasn't political, it was ideological. Wrong again. You make us sound like some kind of extremist. We were just doing what was necessary. Joanne, that's fucking crazy. But look, I don't need to debate that with you. I just well, need to... I do. How on earth can you be my lawyer if you don't even believe in what we did? It's beside the point what I think of what you did. In fact, it's better if I don't believe in it, as you put it, because most people wouldn't agree with it, even if you gave them a million bucks. And it's most people that's going to be on the jury. But anyway, we can wait to sort all that out once we've got a formal idea of all the charges. It's weird, but the police have only got you up on one charge so far, possessing explosives, Section 93FA. I thought there were a bunch of them. Or maybe that's just what they said they were going to do. The police mentioned further charges? Sabotage and shit, I think. Well, this one's just possession of explosives at the moment. I think we can expect more. This charge, possession of explosives without lawful excuse, presumably you didn't have one? Yeah, protection of Mother Earth. Yes, but under some, you know, recognised law of Australia. No. Okay, so if you admitted in the interview that you were at Liddell and had explosives, well... You're cooked, she thought. Unless they could challenge it on the public space bit. Wasn't Liddell private property? Maybe that was the angle. I didn't admit to the explosives. I thought it was obvious. But yes, I did admit to being there. So I guess with that and their little wandy thing, voila, section 93FA. So what did my dad say? Not much, but he's very concerned about you. Mm. Has there been any coverage of the others? In the paper, I mean. Flame? Skydark? This is where I should stop listening, Cressida thought. Uh, What others? As far as I knew, there was only you. Well, anyway, if you see anything, can you let me know? I haven't seen any of them since Friday night. We all went straight into hiding. Can I ask just one question? Why that Friday night? I don't know. It just turned out that way. Why? The lights just happened to go off in the most important meeting of my career, that's all. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I know. A lot of people were inconvenienced. That was never our intention. Except that it was. Because the convenience of coal-fired power is exactly what's killing us. Oh, call you when those other charges come through. And welcome back. You are on Green Left Radio for Friday Brecky, and that was Chapter 13 of the book Direct Action by Jackie Svensson. Uh, the introduction and audio script adaptation were by the author, Jackie Svensson. Uh, it was narrated by myself, sound by Brad Cook. Music, Wood and Water uh, by Jin Cho is available on SoundCloud. And it was produced by Steve O'Brien from the Newcastle Green Left team. Joanna was our very own Chloe De Silva. 
Cressida was Kamala Emanuel from Brisbane. Uh, Prison Warden 1 was Rachel Evans from Sydney. Prison Warden 2 was Karen Fletcher from Melbourne. And the prisoners in the yard were Rachel Evans and a sort of guest appearance by Jackie Svensson. Uh, and the publisher of the original manuscript is Lacuna Publishing. The author is Jackie or JD Svensson, and you can order it online by going to lacunapublishing.com. L-A-C-U-N-A publishing.com, one word. And yeah, I can't recommend that book highly enough. It's a really fascinating, uh, we've just had a glimpse of it from the radio play, but it's a really fascinating and, and on point insight into this kind of collision of the, the, the capitalist state and the legal system with activists. It deliberately takes quite a severe example where people have blown up power stations. I don't think the book is actually advocating that at all, but it's deliberately taking this extreme example to sort of explore this collision of worlds where you've got grassroots activists and then they're kind of getting pushed back from the state and how these two sides kind of lock horns. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great book, very dramatic, and you should definitely check it out. Oh, thanks for that, Zane. Yeah. I might just go play a quick announcement um, and then we might go on to do a bit of the activist calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500 That's 1300 500 Wellways supports 3CR. You are listening to Green Left Radio, and it is now time for the activist calendar. Now, we'll go a bit short this time because we do have um, an interview that we would like to play um, for the program. Now, the first event I'll just like to note is on Saturday at 2pm at the State Library is going to be a rally um, by the Tamil community and it's titled, the rally is titled Tamil Oppression Day. Um, and um, you can find probably a bit more background about it if you look on our website on Green Left into the activist calendar. The next event is on Saturday, February the 6th at 6.30pm. There'll be an online film screening of Santiago Rising, basically a documentary that covers the big sort of mass movement that is um, happening in Chile at the moment. And then there'll be an online forum, um, How Capitalism Creates Racism, that actually I'm going to be sort of speaking at, and it's going to be happening on Tuesday, February the 9th at 6.30pm, and it's happening via Zoom. If you go on our Green Left website in the activist calendar, you can get 
the Zoom link. You can also um, attend the, per the event in person um, pending um, COVID kind of restrictions um, with limited attendance. And you can RSVP at 0458958385. Then there'll be a rally, Free the Medivac Refugees, um, at Saturday, February the 13th at 2pm. Let them out, let them stay at the State Library at 328 Swanson Street in the city. Now, I'll just, um, anyway, that will be it for the activist calendar. And, um, yeah, hopefully you can make some of these um, events. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 94198377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. listening to Green Left Radio and um, we're very happy that we have a special interview um, for our program this week. This is an interview that was um, done on February the 3rd um, by Green Left's Peter Boyle where he interviewed Debbie Sohart who is a veteran human rights campaigner and founder of the Alternative ASIN Network on, on Bur in Burma. Now Basically, this um, this is a interview is basically in response to a military coup that many of our listeners have probably followed in the news that there's currently a military coup going underway in Burma slash Myanmar, and this interview is basically going through the politics of kind of what's happening there and what yeah a bit of a kind of left wing sort of political analysis on these events. Anyway, hope you enjoy, and I'll play the interview now. Uh, Debbie, what do you think has brought on this coup? Uh, we were seeing an economic crisis in Burma because of COVID and how the government, including the military authorities, uh, mismanaged it. And we saw a rise in... Um, armed conflicts, uh, military attacking civilian communities. We saw uh, attacks happening in 10 out of the 14 states and regions of the country during 2020. So um, that's always a recipe for disaster. But what really gave the military a headache was that the National League for Democracy, led by Aung San Suu Kyi, had a huge landslide victory in the November 2020 general elections. Despite um, so many barriers and the uh, voting um, banned uh, in, in many ethnic areas, the NLD won a second term um, very, very convincingly in a very compelling way. And that would have meant that the NLD would have been emboldened to take stronger action on reforms in the country, and um, that would have been quite un intolerable for the military. But of course, there's always a personal motive. The Commander-in-Chief, Senior General Min Aung Lai, who is the main person responsible for the Rohingya genocide, 
um, was due to retire um, in the middle of this year. He would no longer be eligible to lead the armed forces, and um, uh, and he would uh, he would lose complete control and complete power. So I think um, it it became quite clear that he had needed to find a way to seize power, and they took the Trump route. They um, claimed that uh, there was a, a, a massive voter fraud and there had been 10 million uh, unlawful votes, et cetera, et cetera. And then after that, um, backed it up with, um, with, with basically uh, the army, with army action to, uh, to ad- arrest Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, president, the president, and um, members of parliament, and uh, and and basically seize power, which they are empowered to do under the military drafted constitution of 2008. So all all the things that human rights activists warned about from the very beginning came to pass in a very terrible way. Uh, Monday was supposed to be the first day of the new parla- uh, of the parliament where they would choose the new uh, president and vice presidents, um, and April would have been the official start date for the new government to take over. Um, all of that was put by the wayside. But um, amidst all of this, it's important to recognize that the civilians, the Rohingya, the Karen, the Kachin, the Shan. Uh, the Chin, um, the Kareni, all these people who have been subjected to armed attacks by the military in the past year are now even more vulnerable. Uh, in, in Rakhine State, both the Rohingya and the Rakhine are under, under attack by the Tadmador. So um, it is unlikely that uh, ethnic minorities already under attack from the military are going to have a better time of it in this uh, under a military junta. How how do you um, how do you assess the experience of the last five years? I don't know whether you can really call it power sharing, but um, how do you assess the impact of those uh, those five years on uh, what will happen now in terms of popular response against this coup and also in terms of the international response because of course Aung San Suu Kyi's standing uh, on the international level has um, taken quite a battering. Well, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, in the past five years, the NLD government led by Aung San Suu Kyi uh, didn't rock the boat. In fact, they tried to um, find ways to get along with the military and convince the military that a civilian government led by the NLD was an important ally. And um, many um, many human rights activists feel that a lot of wasted opportunity. There were a lot of wasted opportunities, um, and um, and there's still we still have this problem of arbitrary detention, land grabbing, armed conflict. You know, the military gained um, 170% increase in its budget since Burma um, nominally moved into a civilian um, democratic government since 2011. 
And with that huge amount of money, they didn't use it for human rights trainings. They used it to attack more people and create more conflict, which is why we've the 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 number of conflicts targeting civilians, the number of attacks targeting civilians or harming civilians rose by 270% during that, that same period. Now, um, you know, it's been a mixed bag. A lot of people have enjoyed greater political space. Um, there was opportunities for people to have meetings, workshops, etc. But um, even then, there were always going to be, um, uh, there were always some type of restriction or, or condition imposed on them. So, you know, we weren't, it, the last five years weren't actually some glorious era of democratization in Burma. It was, there were still so many fundamental challenges, not to mention the Rohingya genocide. So I think, um, uh, the the expectation at that time was somehow the NLD and the military would find a way to get along. Compromises would be made, but the the broader um, the broader sense of a stable economic development would be achieved, which is why this is um, quite shocking. Although we all we all warned that the constitution itself enabled the commander in chief to grab power. At, for no apparent reason, for any reason really, um, the, there was also an assumption that the military and their families and their cronies were too addicted to foreign investment and being part of the international community to take any drastic action like this. But now, what we see since February 11, the early hours of February, sorry, now what we see since the early hours of February the 1st on Monday is that this was a very well-planned operation. Um, we think that at the end of this, about a thousand, up to a thousand, a thousand and sixty-four members of parliament who were not, who are not aligned with the military are likely to have been subjected to some type of arbitrary detention, interrogation and house arrest. Um, it is uh, very possible that the senior leaders of the National League for Democracy will be targeted for harsher treatment. But also, um, what is our main concern is for human rights defenders from all backgrounds, Burman and ethnic and other ethnic groups, um, especially young people, are going to be targeted quietly and viciously. And um, we are also seeing a rise of uh, a mob of mob rule, where the military uses um, so-called mass movements, but essentially people who are paid uh, to support the military and to attack their critics. So it gives the the military and the armed forces some measure of deniability to say, oh, these are just random people who love their country and love the military coming after you. It's not us. So we're, we are likely to see all of those um, situations, all of those developments happening if they have not happened already. But also there's this idea. I mean, the military, General, gentlemen online took the Trump, took a, a cut out of uh, Trump's book and 
and used this uh, used fake news and disinformation and fear mongering via social media to claim that there was a 10 million election fraud. Um, but the difference with, between him and Trump is that he had an entire army at his disposal. But I think also the um, senior general Min Aung is also um, playing poker with the international community. They're taking a gamble that um, they promised just to have a caretaker military junta for a year and have fresh elections and people are not going to jail. They're going to go under house arrest. Everyone will start getting used to being back under a military regime and then they will extend that period um, and start and also use the time to whittle away at whatever little reforms that were made. This is really, really dangerous because there's so much pressure now to basically start up a fire sale of the, the country's natural resources in order to win back what, was, what, is, what is being lost because of COVID. And that also means that people are at risk of um, increased threats to their livelihood, being forcibly displaced. And, and because the borders are so tightly controlled because of COVID, there will be nowhere for refugees to run. It's interesting that you mentioned this, um, the military playing chicken with the West. Um, in Australia, for instance, uh, calls for uh, the uh, military cooperation with, uh, with, with, with uh, Myanmar to be uh, stopped or suspended have been met with unofficial messaging from the government that uh, this could be a dangerous thing because it will push, it could push uh, Myanmar closer to China. So everything is within this framework of, you know, China, China's growing influence in the region. Um, how do you, how, what, what do you think about this military cooperation? Should it end? And, uh, and, and also what about this, this China card, which seems to be uh, in the game somehow? Everyone is using the China card to maintain the status quo. And let me be frank here. The ASEAN and the international community uh, engaged with the military regime in its earlier incarnation in the 80s and the 90s saying, oh, if it's not us, then China will get in. Well, China got in anyway. China got in anyway. And not only that, China, um, uh, China corrupted the system even further because countries like Australia just kept their mouths shut and just wanted to engage for engagement's sake. Like, you know, um, it's quite illogical at this point to say, oh, yeah, we've got to go along with the coup because we don't want China to have too much influence. Why do you think the military had a coup? Because they have very they were very confident that China would back them up. So we have to actually do whatever we can. Uh, we need to act comprehensively to go after the military's interests, whether it's military, whether it's the general's children studying in Australia whether it's the military's family or military themselves coming for medical treatment or a shopping trip in Australia, I'm sorry, it's time to take a stand. 
And you know what? The reality is that the more, the longer you allow this military re regime to stay in power, the more it will produce uh, refugees and displaced persons. And I know how the Morrison government is so allergic to refugees and asylum seekers. If they don't give a damn about human rights, it's time for them to understand what are the consequences on Australia and on regional human security if you let if you don't you let you let this coup pass. The General Min Online is hoping that they will be treated the same as Thailand when Thailand had their coup. A few statements of concern or condemnation, then back to business as usual, and uh, and eventually uh, he can become president either elected or unelected. That's the that's the scenario. But what's different now from 10 years ago is that people in the military, the military class have gotten used to being able to travel, to shop, to study overseas. They 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 need to feel some pain. They need to understand that their wealth is at stake. And this is something that's fundamentally important. We need to get um, countries like Australia saying, this is an urgent matter that needs to be raised at the UN Security Council. This has happened and China's blocked it. But do you think China will keep protecting the regime? No, eventually it's gonna get tired of it because they've got other fish to fry. So it's about being persistent. It's about being consistent. And it's about thinking strategically and logically. Just, you know, having this very weak, spineless excuse like, oh, we can't do it, you know, because of China. Yeah, all right. Everything is because of China. China is the reason not to act. Um, and that's just not good enough. That That is a weak excuse. And it's it's a weak excuse coming from people who are with very weak principles. Would you, from what you said, um, the, the military still has a big economic weight or, or stake uh, in, in, in the, you know, in the economy. And would you say this has been, has grown in the last five years, over the last five years, or has it been uh, reduced? Is there, has there actually been a reduction in, in the, and the real day-to-day -day power and weight of the military in Burmese society? The, some of the largest um, national corporations in the country are either controlled um, by military or former military or are, uh, are partially owned or provide profits for the military and their families. The reason the military is grabbing power is they have, they want to regain economic control of the country. The UN fact finding mission already um, highlighted that the number of military owned and military linked companies, and this is something that no, most of the international community were reluctant to deal with. But we should be sanctioning the pants of these corporations. We should be ensuring that Australian companies and Australian supply chains don't go, don't touch 
any of these corporations because we that would be contributing directly and indirectly not only to genocide but also to serious crimes and war crimes happening all around the country so i think um you know, we, we we also need to understand that Australian corporations and the Australian government has obligations, not just under human rights treaties, but under the OECD guidelines for responsible business conduct and the UN guiding principles for business and human rights, etc. that they have to start cleaning up their act or risk later down the track being sued or subjected to um, legal action for failing to disengage themselves from these business organizations. Actually, if the international community had worked harder to help dismantle and weaken these uh, military economic institutions, then perhaps the military wouldn't be in such a in field that they need to have a coup. Last night's uh, international news coverage um, said that the streets were had were very calm and that um, life seemed to be returning to normal. Are you surprised by this and or do you think this is um, a calm before the storm? Is there going to be some sort of, do you anticipate um, a, a mass response sometime soon? I think, um, you know, there's this, uh, there's a, a mainstream media narrative that the people of Burma are helpless, um, they are fatalistic, that they won't do anything. And let's, let, let's not forget, this history of this country has featured many bloody crackdowns because people refused to give in. Now, last night, uh, households start, uh, went out um, into their yards or into their balconies and banged pots at 8 p.m. And 8 p.m. is the national news. So they were banging pots um, in protest. And this is reminiscent of other movements around the world, including in Turkey, where at an appointed time, people stood out in front of their houses and banged pots in protest. Now, um, there are a huge number of really courageous activists who are out there documenting what is happening and finding ways and means to get it out to the outside world. None of this, you know, there's no more flights going in and out of Burma, not just domestic, not just international, but yeah, domestic flights either. People are being forced to stay in place. So international media can't get in. And it's the local activists who are getting the news out and um, get, keeping people informed. There's, they've started a civil disobedience movement and this is a very interesting intergenerational um, process. We're seeing a lot of young people getting very outraged and using social media for this purpose even though they've been warned by the authorities. So, you know, the, the thing is that um, we can't expect immediately for people to go out on the streets because they know very well this is a brutal military regime. The streets of Rangoon, Mandalay, and, and Napidor have been bristling with um, with military checkpoints for the past for days before the actual coup. So people are not likely to just go out and, and have a confrontation, knowing that they're likely to be killed on the spot. 
So I think um, groups are groups have um, uh, groups have mobilized. They're working underground. They're working discreetly. They're trying to uh, do whatever's necessary, and we will really see the resistance um, come out in the weeks ahead. The resistance has already started, and it started not just with our hardcore activists on the ground, it started with ordinary people who are really angry about what's happened. Thank you, Debbie, for your insights and also for your years of consistent hard work for uh, human rights. You're listening to Green Left Radio and you're just listening to a recording of an interview that was done with Debbie Surhad, who is a veteran human rights campaigner and founder of the alternative ASEAN network in Burma and basically having a bit of discussion about the background to the latest military coup in Burma. Anyway, hope you um, listeners have enjoyed the program. We'll be tuning out um, now this um, for this week. And stay tuned for Beyond Zero Missions, which is going to be coming up next. And we hope to see you all next week. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that